Hey everybody, welcome back to the last question. I'm Arun. If this is the first episode you're catching, uh, hopefully this one's interesting. It's we uh, mix interviews in with solo episodes, and then every Monday uh, publish a, a shorter episode called "Lead Your Week." Usually a question or an idea, something that uh, I ask you, I suggest that you think about over the course of your coming week. Uh, subscribers to the newsletter, members of the Facebook group. Uh, sometimes we'll get additional thoughts, additional material, additional reading stuff that's based on that question. So anyway, welcome. I'm really glad you found us. Uh, if you find value in this, if you like the work that we're doing on the podcast, uh, if you've got any feedback at all, I would encourage you to rate and review. Even if you think the show sucks, don't hold back. If, if there's things you think are good, but then things that you think need to change, feel free to let me know that. Today. Um, I hesitate to call this a special edition or a special episode because I feel like that's a bit trite and overused. But for me, this is a special episode, or we'll say a significant episode. Um, today is day one of my life off duty. Today is day one of my life as a civilian. Uh, so if you've been listening for any length of time or if you follow me on social media, uh, you've, you've picked up on the fact that I was active duty military, spent 12 months or 12 years, 11 months in the Air Force on active duty. And yesterday was what in the Air Force we call my date of separation, which was the official legal last day um, as an on-duty military member. Today marks my first day as a regular person, as a normal person. All right, maybe I'll say regular person, as a civilian. And so uh, if, and so there's a lot that I've been thinking about. Uh, there's, there are conflicting emotions, we'll say. I wasn't sure how I would feel when I woke up this morning. Um, my final out processing appointment for those, for the uninitiated, you'll often hear military members, at least Air Force members, refer to it as the final out. And it's really just the last appointment where the personnel unit, the personnel section, whoever that is on your base, is checking a bunch of paperwork and the checklist of all the things you have to do to cut the cord. And they tell you, green light, you're good to go. You have nothing else left that you owe in terms of um, administrative process. So that actually happened Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon rather. And then Wednesday, yesterday was my date of separation. And then today, Thursday, April 29th, is my first full day as a civilian, as simply a room uh, to anyone who might know me, uh, to anyone older or younger, by the way, who might know me, which to me is important. And so I woke up this morning um, and my wife was already stirring. The baby had been up, and so she was sitting up. And uh, you know, I just kind of make a joke, made a joke of it. I said, "Hey, my name is Arun. Nice to meet you." Um, because I have gotten too used to, or I think I had gotten too used to introducing myself as rank and last name. Not because certainly I would not do that at the grocery store. I would not do that at the car dealer or at the at the auto shop or wherever I was going. Um, but I spent most of my waking hours during the day in an environment where I could not use my first name and other people around me could not use 
my first name. And the older you get and the more experience you gain in the military, the less likely it is that people around you will be using your first name. Um, particularly if you are an officer uh, like I was, it, it will be, it's difficult in the official environment for people to use your first name. One of the reasons why I appreciated the call sign concept, which not every community adopts. Uh, it's common in aviation. It has become more common in missile operations, I think in space uh, operations, at least as far as the Air Force was concerned. Uh, one of the reasons I appreciated it was for what we always taught was the official purpose or the original purpose of a call sign, which was to remove rank so that you could effectively debrief and effectively uh, deliver and receive feedback. So for instance, if, if a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, someone outranking me and I go out and deploy to the field, in my case as a missileer, if we're a two-person crew, and I did this as a captain, as a younger ranking officer, I would go out with senior officers, we would deploy for 24 to 36 hours, and we would spend the whole time really just together most of the time just the two of us communicating with plenty of people by phone or by email but we were the only two uh, in-person contact for each other for uh, for more than a day 80 feet down inside of a nuclear hardened bunker and so if if that colonel did something unsafe uh, or he or she did something I didn't agree with, or he or she did something and I at least had a question. And so, and, and not even something malicious, but let's say they did something at the console or they were getting ready to do something on the phone. And I was like, I'm not, is that right? I'm not sure. Uh, not, not only should I have asked the question, but I should have asked it in that immediate moment. But what you find oftentimes, and um, this isn't unique to the military, but I think the military provides one of the cleanest examples. If, if Captain Chatur is sitting there in the right seat as the deputy or the second in command, and Colonel so-and-so is about to do something, it automatically puts up a barrier to communication if I look over and say, uh, sir, ma'am, Colonel so-and-so, I've got a question for you. Just that rank and last name particularly to a senior member, can uh, increase the gap between the two of you. Versus if I were to say, uh, hey, I'm going to use generic names just to, just to protect privacy. Nitro, Maverick, if you're a Top Gun fan, right? Maverick is one of the more famous call signs. Goose, hey man, question for you. Um, and I've been lucky to deploy mostly with most of the senior officers that I've worked with. I shouldn't say that. There are several senior officers that I worked with in my uh, 12 years plus with whom in the operational environment, I could easily do that. I could address them by call sign. I could address them directly. I could ask the question or provide the input. And it was a peer-to-peer -peer conversation. And then the moment you leave that environment, you get back to the base where you're in the offices doing the administrative, the administrivia, as we call it. Uh, of the day-to-day -day running of a unit, we're back to Colonel so-and-so, Major so-and-so, Captain so-and-so, and that's okay. And I think that is an important distinction to draw, but a lot of communities don't operate that way. And so, you know, when I'm walking around the base or I'm interacting with other airmen, simply seeing my rank on my shoulders or on my collar or wherever it is on, my, on that particular uniform already sets up the interaction in such a way um, that isn't always beneficial, right? So people make assumptions about other people based on the rank they wear, the ribbons on their chest, 
what badges, what occupational badges they wear, right? So if you're in the Air Force, if you have wings or a what we call the pocket rocket, the missile badge, or if you have a cyberspace operations badge, or if you have any number of occupational badges, right? People will make an assumption about what kind of person you are, what kind of airman you are, what kind of things you do day-to-day at work. Sometimes they'll make assumptions about what your family looks like, what kind of hobbies you have. Um, and in, in some ways it's harmless. Uh, ideally you make friends outside of your own community, but the Air Force I have found uh, is rather stovepiped in its communities, in its subspecialties. We have so many individual specialty codes and specialty communities that it can become difficult to not just work with other communities, but to socialize with them even because everyone is naturally busy. Um, and that's not unique to the military either, but everybody's busy. Everybody's trying to do more with less. On top of that, a lot of us have families, spouses, kids, all the same stressors and things that everyone goes through. And so that dynamic creates a, an interesting cultural dilemma, I think, um, and a world in which, despite it being the military, uh, in a lot of ways we suffer the military, the Air Force, I should say, not we anymore, suffers from some of the same issues that we see our largest companies suffer from. So that interlude aside, I kind of rambled a bit. Today is, is a discussion just between you and me. And really it is, a, it is an installment, another installment, not, certainly not the beginning and probably not the end of a conversation I've had with myself uh, with my wife, too, by extension, and with a couple of close friends over the last year or so, trying to reconcile my experience with the future and with my way forward and my family's way forward and with what I want the future to look like. And so today, um, I'm going to talk through five lessons that I got from my 12 years, 11 months. Uh, five lessons that I think among all the things that I learned, you know, I was I, for, for 12 years plus every single day was, was a little bit different. Some days were radically different than, than what you might consider typical quote unquote. Um, I got to do some pretty cool things. I was also in some pretty rough meetings. I got, I got my, my tail handed to me more than once. Um, the, the experiences run the gamut, but I've, I've tried for my own sake and certainly for me as someone trying to now present myself to the rest of the world, having been in some ways isolated from it for more than a decade. I've, I've worked hard to try and boil down the entire experience to a handful of nuggets that I can carry forward with me. Certainly lessons that apply to those of you in the military, but that should also apply whether you are a veteran or you've never spent a day in uniform, if you've never spent a day working for any kind of government agency, uh, chances are these will apply to you too. So uh, give them some thought, see whether they apply to you or not, see whether you agree or disagree. And as always, uh, let me hear your feedback. You can do so through a review, hit me up on social media or email me arun at enableword.com. Okay. But before, I should say, before I get to the five lessons, uh, there is one more, one more thing I want to cover. Um, 
No, I lied. I'll cover it at the end. Never mind. Okay. You can tell I'm, I'm not reading from a script. I've got my five lessons in front of me, but other than that, um, plenty of thoughts go through my head as I look at these. So my five lessons, now that I'm off duty, number one, and this one's, and this one's foremost in my mind because of the job I'm just coming off of. So my last assignment was as an ROTC instructor at Ohio State, go Bucks. Uh, so for two years, I taught and trained officer candidates, college students who are full-time college students, full-time at a university, getting whatever degree they're getting. On top of that, spending several hours a week on the side, some of them paid, some of them not, training to become military officers in the Air Force in our case, uh, and now in the Space Force, now that we have both of those services to take care of. And so this lesson is foremost in my mind, and it only uh, was reinforced in my mind in, in my last few months in that job. And that is leadership. Leadership as a concept, as an idea, must be individually defined but collectively assessed. Leadership is individually defined, collectively assessed. So when, so now I have to, I rewind, um, what is that, 16 years, 17 years, back to 2003. In 2003, I was a college freshman at Ohio State. And I was actually an Army ROTC cadet. A lot of people don't know I started out in the Army having been uh, medically disqualified three separate times from two different services. And at one point or the other, putting my name on a piece of paper as a candidate for every single military service. Trying to find a way into the service uh, to repay the debt that I believe I owed back to the country. And that's a, a different story for a different day. But ultimately, I started as an Army cadet. I met some great friends in uh, what was then Charlie Company, which was the, the, the freshman, new student, new cadet unit, part of Army ROTC. Uh, some of them are still great friends and dear friends and, and really family members in some cases today. But I spent a quarter in Army ROTC and then for whatever reason got this idea that I, I love to be around airplanes I should probably be in the Air Force. And I didn't have a bad experience in Army ROTC, but there was something pulling me in a different direction that I couldn't explain. And so it was Christmas time, December 2003. I was getting on an airplane, um, not even walking through the jetway, which I think, as strange as this sounds, is part of it. Well, I was in Cincinnati flying back to Alabama to see family. Um, and yes, if you're doing the math, I flew a connection, a connecting flight from Columbus to the, to Alabama through Cincinnati. Columbus to Cincinnati is about an hour and a half by car, so uh, really took me longer to drive to the airport and get and get through security than it did just to fly that flight. But in any case, I'm boarding a flight in Cincinnati. It's maybe 9 p.m. and it's it's one of those regional jets, right? It's a pretty nice airplane, but tiny overhead bins. You can't take your roller bag on and the airport is so large and, and really so overbooked in terms of aircraft to doorways that this plane is just sitting on the apron with the ladder down and you got to walk outside the building into the jet noise, into the night, into the drizzle 
and board the airplane from the ground. And for whatever reason, I had already been churning in my mind about what, what my future was going to be. Is my future in the Army? I had thought a lot about what Army branch I wanted to join. I really wanted to join Armor. I wanted to be in tanks, leading troops, on, on the ground, maneuvering. But I'd always liked airplanes. As a kid, I always loved going to the airport. I loved flying. Uh, I loved everything about flying. I certainly don't have the eyes to become a pilot. I learned that early on. That was part of my medical saga. And so I step out. It is late, about 9 p.m. It's drizzling. It's December in Ohio. And I, there's jet noise everywhere. I can smell jet fuel. Uh, the APU is on, so you've got that humming and whining in the background, right? There's other aircraft starting up. All the standard hustle and bustle if you've ever been to a large airport, to a hub airport. And I just love that environment. I could see myself hanging out on the ground, running around, marshalling airplanes and loading bags, right? And I had thought at one point during college, I tried to work for Southwest in Columbus as ground crew and didn't get the job, but it is a job I really wanted. So that was another scene uh, in, my, in my experience that reinforced the idea that, hey, I, I need to be maybe in a different environment. And so fast forward a few weeks, I had made contact with an instructor in the Air Force program, which was on the third floor of the same building. Army was on second floor. Navy Marines were on the first floor. Air Force is up top on the third floor, which is really a half floor of that building. Because uh, if you think about it in military history, Air Force is kind of an afterthought in the long, in the long picture of American history. So in January, I joined Air Force ROTC. And Air Force ROTC, uh, as a freshman, after only one quarter, wasn't that much of a shock culturally, I don't think. If I had waited a full year or two years, it would have been a, a much bigger shock. Because on the Army side... Most of the lessons and the training we received, at least as a freshman, my experience is very limited, keep in mind. And I've, while I got to observe from afar, it wasn't the same as going through it. But what we spent a lot of time doing in that first quarter was all based on small unit maneuver, right? So as a fire team leader, as a squad leader, watching your platoon leader, uh, so junior and senior cadets, third and fourth year cadets leading you through small unit tactical maneuver how do you move through an open field move through the woods move across a water hazard move across a creek bed move a, move through and across and around and into potential contact situations how to perform an overwatch what that even means what it means to provide covering fire what it means to lead soldiers in a situation where you cannot predict the outcome, where you don't have on the, all the intel, where you've never been, where the weather and the environment are tough to predict and are harsher than you expected. With all of these variables, how do you get soldiers through on the other, to the other side alive? We started to have those conversations as first quarter freshmen, which, which can get heavy and gets heavy, right? Even if you knew you were going to join the military for a while, even if you knew this was where you belong, and that part I didn't question, it's still significant to be having those types of conversations as, a, as an 18-year-old, 
And most of us were that traditional student, 18, maybe 19 years old, just starting out. So when I went to the Air Force, those are not the conversations you have in Air Force ROTC. We started to have them. We were having those conversations more often by the time I came back. But at the time, what I remember talking about most was drill, marching, uh, making decisions under pressure. We did talk about that. We talked about uh, leadership, but that conversation really doesn't occur in force until the second year. The first year, uh, a lot of it is spent on simple acclimation before assimilation. So how do you wear the uniform? Uh, what are the rank structures? What's the, di the difference between us and the other services, right? The, the name of the rank is different. The insignia, of course, are different. The colors are different. The way we wear our uniforms is different, all that kind of stuff. So you spend a lot of time, and in my case, I had to catch up learning how to wear the uniform, how to greet the seven standard responses, for those who know what those are, um, all sorts of things related to decorum, etiquette, your behavior. And then in the second year, uh, when I was going through the program, it was history and heritage. And we spent all year talking about Air Force and military history, which as a history buff, of course, I enjoyed. Not everyone in my class enjoyed it. Uh, I had friends who really hated reading about history, talking about history. That wasn't their thing, and that's fine. Of course, it was my bag. I enjoy it and still do to this day. And then as you progress, you are hearing from officers and non-commissioned officers, not just about their experiences, but you're hearing about what leadership looks like what it takes to be a leader. And I think, and I, I myself have made this mistake recently as I've been uh, building and have now put out two different coaching programs that are focused on leadership development, not just for you, but for those team members, teammates who are relying on you and trusting you and for whose development you are responsible. Even as I've been building these programs, I fell victim to the exact same thing that I have tried to avoid and have told other people to avoid. And it's that in my experience as an ROTC cadet coming back as an instructor and at different points along in my um, career, sounds like a weird word to use, but I'll say career or experience at various times throughout that, throughout that experience as we tell each other and teach each other what it takes to be a good whatever fill in the blank leader operator to be a good flight commander to be a good squad leader um that's still an army term but to be a good deputy commander to be a good crew commander to be a good instructor to be a good whatever first off all of those other terms really fit underneath the umbrella of leadership because i think Leadership is teaching, it is mentoring, it is coaching, it is setting vision, defining the mission, organizing and prioritizing tasks. All these things are skills and attributes of a leader. But what we do to our detriment, I think, is attempt to systematize whatever has worked for us or whatever we've seen work so that we can carbon copy it for someone else or, or create in someone else a carbon copy of us or whatever that example was. And I've done this. I've, I've been subject to it and I have 
I think inadvertently recently argued for that because even as part of my signature coaching program, the one-on-one program that I developed that I am now, that I am now adjusting and reframing, I developed a system to present to other people. Now I'm not saying that a system to use as a framework, as a foundation, as a way to, to teach from isn't, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but where we have to be cautious and where I think we, we fall into a trap more often than not is that we go from framework into the teaching environment to execution and assessment. And now what we expect is that we expect to see every one of our students or trainees or young airmen or whatever, whoever that audience is, we expect them to execute the way we would. By extension, what does that mean? To, to me, what that means is, and I've made this mistake many times, what that means is the feedback you then give that audience, the feedback you give your trainees, your junior airmen, your students, whoever it is, the feedback you give them isn't coming from a place of what they need to develop themselves. It's coming from a place of what you would have done at that same moment. This is why I disagree. Or, hey, why, why did you do that? This is what I would have done. Or even if you ask, why did you do that? And you stop and you wait and you listen to the answer. You're, you're forming in your mind already the response to it, if it's anything other than what you would have done. So I think leadership, the, the best leaders I've ever worked for, and frankly, the times where I think, I feel as though I was most effective as a leader, the one thing all those situations have in common is that the method, the style, the, the, the presence, how that individual showed up, myself included, all of those things were defined by that person individually in a manner appropriate only to that person. There are tenets of leadership that I think apply across the board, right? If you've read, if you've been a reader of Simon Sinek or, or are familiar with his stuff, starting with why, I think is a common tenet a lot of people talk about now. Leaders eat last, based on a, a second book, that's another common tenet, um, famous especially, or, or best known probably from the Marine Corps, and that's where his story, uh, his book starts. You know, there, there are a lot of tenets, there are a lot of phrases, there are a lot of catchwords, things that we say that encapsulate a leadership lesson. But how I define leaders eat last, how I execute that idea must be appropriate, relevant, unique to me. Otherwise, it is blatantly obvious that I'm faking it. It's blatantly obvious that I'm not leading in a manner that's true to me. And if that's the case, what right do I have to your trust? What's, what suggests to you that I'm worthy of your trust if I can't even act in the way that I should be for me? Because the farther away I am from authenticity, I know it's a, it's a, it's a, that's another term that's probably become trite and overused, but that's the best word I can think of. The farther you deviate from an authentic execution of a leadership style that's authentic and relevant to you, 
the more obvious it is and the less likely you are to lead effectively. That also does not mean, however, that every single person is destined to be a brilliant leader and will always gain uh, trust and followership just because they lead in a manner true to who they are. Not everyone is cut out to be responsible for other people. I think that's absolutely true. And I've worked for some of those people. I've worked with some, I've worked for some, and I've had some quote unquote work for me or report to me on the org chart. That level of responsibility is not for everyone, which is, which brings me to the second half of the lesson. Leadership is individually defined, but collectively assessed. In 2014, I attended the Air Force Weapons School. It's a six-month program. Um, they take you through a whole bunch of tactical, technical information, but really it's a leadership development program. They're really pushing you to become a much better, much more complete teacher, instructor, trainer, coach, mentor, and uh, leader of airmen by the time you get out. Uh, the merits of the program, I think the program itself has a lot of merit, uh, and perhaps I'll do an episode in the future talking more about my experience in the program and some of the concerns and issues I had with it. But ultimately, it did teach me a lot, and it certainly conditioned me against failure and mistake, conditioned me against feeling bad about it. Um, that's not the right, the, way, the right way to put it. Conditioned me against becoming paralyzed from it. I still felt bad when I made mistakes, particularly when they affected other people, which oftentimes they do. But I can keep going. I can admit to it quickly. That's on me. I own that one and move on and come up with a fix. And I do credit the weapons school experience for that. But one of the things that they taught us that I never could buy off on was that you have to be able to assess your own effectiveness as a leader. And I've gone back and forth on that over time. And I have tried to find a way to be objective and to give myself honest feedback about the good and the bad. But I still to this day, when faced with positive feedback about my performance, can easily and will quickly find the negatives to offset that feedback. And I don't know if that's because the positive feedback makes me uncomfortable, which at times it does, or it's, or it's because simply I'm not convinced, or I'm seeing something they're not, or they're seeing something I'm not, right? Probably all of those are true to a point. But I have never been comfortable with the idea that I could walk away from a leadership position, a position where I was directly responsible for some team of some size, and assess on my own whether I was effective or not. I don't think assessing your own leadership paints a complete picture. Certainly not if you intend to lead again. If you intend to lead multiple times, if the military example, of course, is the most recent for me. So if you're in the military and you go from one command position to another, which happens, or if you go from a supervisory position to another or from one to a command position, right? If you're hopping job to job where multiple jobs in a row are, you have direct reports or a large unit reporting to you. You cannot continue to grow and improve if the only assessment of your performance you're relying on is yours. 
Now in the military, we have performance reviews, performance reports. They're called something different in every service. I know the civilian world certainly is familiar with performance reviews, appraisals, whatever you might call them. You're going to get feedback in some form or fashion. And so that is a way institutionally, a lot of us get feedback. But if you are in the military or if you're in the Air Force at least, that performance report is not painting the full picture and it's not really telling the story. Performance reports are really just a way of putting down the numbers and the dates and a lot of the hard data that is a way of describing your past year or your past whatever, 10 months, 12 months, whatever it was. But it doesn't really tell the story about what kind of leader you were, about whether you gained the trust of your people, about whether you trusted them effectively, about whether you were able to motivate the group to push toward the new vision, the new mission, if you were able to accomplish the mission, there's a lot that those performance reports don't cover. And so the, the, point of, the point of this is the first lesson isn't to come to you with a method. I don't have a method, not a good one, not, not one that I've been able to refine. I've asked for feedback from people who worked with me, who people who worked quote unquote for me, right? So team members for whom I worked in a leadership position I've asked for their feedback and I've gotten positives and negatives, but I'm constantly concerned that as I get the positives, what are the negatives? Cause I know they're negatives. And so I don't ask for them because I'm afraid of it. I ask because I know that there's more growth there. I know that there's mistakes I made, but just as I, just as I say, I cannot assess to the positive and use that as a, as a stepping stone forward. I can't just rely on my own negative assessment. And I at least can acknowledge that if there are positives and negatives, then I'm, I must also rely on the positive and negative feedback coming from that collective, right? And the collective is broad. Who was your boss or your commander? Who were your peers? Particularly if your peers and you do the same job. When I was stationed in Wyoming, I had three peers. I had many peers at the same supervisory level, but I had three in particular whose job descriptions were identical to mine. And in, and in many ways, I failed to take their feedback in real time. Whether it was given directly, hey, dude, you're messing this up, or indirectly, avoiding a conversation, avoiding a meeting. Um, there's a lot of indirect feedback that you'll receive, but you will not be able to do anything with it if you're not ready to receive it, if you're not looking for it proactively. And I failed multiple times to take feedback from my, from my peers doing the exact same job I was. And then certainly from my team, both the ones with a direct line to me on the org chart and the ones with an indirect line from the larger squadron, I was receptive and I honestly would take negative feedback the moment it came, but did I receive everything that I was due? Did I act on everything the way I should have? I'm still working through that. But ultimately, the one thing I still believe, no matter how positive or how negative the feedback, your leadership, your effectiveness as a leader is collectively assessed, must be collectively assessed. You must individually define what leadership is for you. And then you must rely on a collective assessment of how you've done. 
And no, not everyone will succeed. Certainly not in the military, not in civilian organizations. There is no guarantee of success in any of these endeavors. But you will absolutely get something out of it if you are trying. If you give your max effort and if you take the feedback for what it is, an opportunity to learn something else and something new, it will absolutely be worth it no matter how long you last. Okay, I went off on that one for a while, but this podcast ostensibly is focused on leadership and that's what I talk a lot about online and otherwise, so I suppose that's appropriate. Lesson number two. More rules equal less thinking, less training, and less ownership. I, I can't remember how long ago it was. And I can't remember which one it was. So forgive me. Someone, someone hit me up online at some point and let me know. I think it was Secretary James, but I don't remember. General Golfine, I know for sure, was the Chief of Staff of the Air Force. So um, if you're not military, if you've heard of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or the Military Service Chiefs, they're the four-star generals and admirals that um, – their primary function is organize, train, and equip the force. So they don't fight the war, but they prepare the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Space Force, uh, and Coast Guard on the DHS side to engage. They, they provide forces to someone uh, overseas to fight the, fight the conflict, whatever it is. So the service chiefs, um, they're the ones sitting in the Pentagon making a lot of those policy and personnel decisions. General Golfine was part of an effort uh, in the Air Force to cut down the number of regulations, Air Force instructions that we all had to reference collectively. On active duty, there's about 330,000 airmen. Um, and at one point, I think it was the Secretary of the Air Force, who again, I can't remember which one it was, uh, she had said that we had, first off, that we had more than 10,000 uh, regulations published and active, which I absolutely believe. Go to go to Google and type in EPUBS, E-P-U-B-S, hit enter. The first link is probably the right one, Air Force E-Publishing, and just go there and browse all of the regs, most of which an individual airman will never look at because they're broken down by specialty, by particular requirement, and you don't, you're not expected to read them all but you'd be surprised how many obscure regs in, in individual categories and buckets you never thought you'd be looking into, you'd have to look into simply because you're in a different kind of a job now, right? You are career broadening. And so now you as a pilot have to get really smart on legal affairs and personnel requirements and uh, Air Force organization, not stuff you'd ever have to deal with if you were simply flying airplanes. We had a lot of rules, and the Air Force still has a lot of rules. And so while I applaud senior leadership's attempt to cut a lot of that stuff out and give commanders back um, the discretion that they should have in leading their units, one thing I definitely learned in earnest, not just as an Air Force member, but as a missileer in particular, was that anytime you are making a rule Anytime you have instituted a new rule, a regulation, 
some sort of written standard. You are, by extension, discouraging people from thinking, from training more, and from taking ownership. Is it appropriate to have no regs? No, none of these things are meant to be taken in the extreme. A key example is uniform wear. As I was thinking through this yesterday, you know, it, it, it is simply convenient to have a regulation for uniform wear, however complex and however annoying some of the rules might be to people, because you don't want to spend the, the limited time you do have to train for combat and to prepare people for their primary mission. You don't want to spend any of that time um, dictating uniform wear, correcting uniform wear. In some places, this is why you'll see military members relatively lax in uniform wear because we just don't have the time, the brain power, the energy. We have to focus on completing the mission because if it's between winning the day and protecting our brothers and sisters or making sure the rank is one inch above the seam but left of this one but to the right of this one and parallel to this other thing, nobody gives a damn about the second thing. Nobody gives a damn about where your rank is pinned if you're taking care of your brother or sister. Certainly that lesson is more easily learned downrange or in the tactical environment versus in the garrison environment or in the on-base at-home station environment. It's really easy to point out the stuff that's not important as critically important. Okay, so it's convenient to have a uniform reg. But we did get to a point where our regulations would either spell out what was prohibited even if it was something that was blatantly unsafe, we thought it appropriate to write it down just in case. And the, and the common excuse is always, well, it wouldn't be in here if somebody hadn't done it. Okay. The other example or the other thing that our regs tended to do was they would be written in such a way, they would be written to suggest these are the things you must do and then these are the things you should do. Uh, and in fact, when I was, I think, at Minot, um, so my first operational tour in the Air Force, a, a bunch of us, I was in a staff position for a little while, and a bunch of us had a task. We had to go through um, the three regulations that applied to us and highlight every must. Sh Actually, this was at Warren, I think. So some of you, if, if you were at Warren with me, may remember this. We had to highlight every must, shall, and will statement copy pasted into a separate document, like an Excel sheet, I think. And that formed our self-inspection program. Every must, shall, and will. And as I soon found out going through the training regulation, because training was my bread and butter, that was my bucket of tasks, there were a lot of must, shalls, and wills. And traditionally, I don't know if this is written down, actually, I should, I'm sure it's written down. Of course it's written down. But traditionally, at least, if it's must, shall, or will, it is a mandate. And as such, if you violate that mandate, you can be held, um, you're violating the reg, and that's an inspection write-up. It's a, it's a bad thing. Even if it's a, you must annotate this form when you check your car's tire pressure. If it's a must, if it says shall, or if it says will, you're doing it or you're getting in trouble to some degree. If it's a should, it is not a mandate. 
It represents a best practice, a suggestion, a good idea. And the, the deal was you had to have a good reason to violate a should. Okay. Well, what if I have a better way? Well, then you'd have to prove that it's a better way. This might sound trivial. It might sound like not a big deal. But what I can tell you from seeing it in practice is that when you combine a human's fear of failure, a human's desire it, not to do more work in some way, in some cases, right? Because innovation and creativity and thinking is difficult. When you combine those factors and when you combine those with the fact that at least in our community in nuclear operations, we made our name on self-abuse. We made our name on uh, self-imposed ass kickings, as one of my old bosses used to say. We made our name on eating our own for decades. Read some of the history of Curtis LeMay as the commander of SAC. We were the legacy of that. And while you may say that's great because nuclear weapons are important, the issue was not accidentally detonating a weapon in the middle of the countryside or losing a weapon or rolling a truck with a weapon in the back off a hill. Those things are certainly bad. But where our community evolved to was a place where should annotate this in your personal checklist became, why aren't you annotating it in your personal checklist? I don't need to. I don't want to. Okay, but the reg says you should. And I don't want to isn't a good enough reason. Even though you didn't make a mistake, you operated perfectly, but you should have this thing written down just like this. We took shoulds as musts, shalls, and wills. And so by the time I arrived into missile operations in 2009, there was no room for the individual. Very little room, I should say, for the individual. We had two big binders. One of the binders held all the checklists that you use to interact with the system, right? So technical orders, that's something that aviators would know about too, space operators, cyberspace operators. In the technical order, it got to the point where in a, in a particular checklist, you are allowed, every page is covered with a sheet protector. So you're allowed to write things on the sheet protector with water-soluble ink as memory joggers, reminders. Hey, you should make this call at this point. Or, hey, did you ask the team chief this thing when you were asking them this question at step 49? And I made annotations like a lot of people did. I had different colors for things, and I, and I had a system for myself. But there was a period where if you didn't make an annotation in line with the suggestion from the, the local Minot standardization folks, if you didn't make that annotation, you were slapped with an error. You were slapped with a, um, well, yeah, what we called an error. So it went on your training record. If you didn't make an annotation, a four-letter acronym and a question mark, you were assessed an error. Even if you don't need that annotation, to follow the checklist exactly. Even if you don't need that annotation to do everything correctly in the field, in the operating environment, 
even if you don't need that annotation to score 100s on your monthly proficiency tests, if you don't have that annotation, it indicates a lack of attention to detail, a lack of discipline. If you're screwing that up, who knows what else you could screw up? That's an error. Okay, well, fine, right? And so what kind of incentive system does that drive? I'm not gonna think about it. I'm not gonna just tell me exactly what to put down in the book because I don't wanna get in trouble for dumb stuff. I don't, get, I don't wanna get errors for dumb stuff. I don't wanna deal with it anymore. I don't have the energy for it. I have actual important things to worry about at work and at home. So you come in and the old people tell you, these are the annotations you should have in your book. And the young people say, okay, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, got it. And they put the annotations in their book. And then you get to a place where people start to make mistakes because they relied so heavily on those annotations, so heavily on the particular way that you format something, then they commit technical errors that are consequential, that are impactful. And as evaluators, which I was one, even during this era, and it pains me to think through these situations, as much as I tried to fight it, right? The, the world we lived in and I worked in at that time, if you committed a technical error, we would root cause it to the missing annotation. And of course, what was it? Some of you out there are gonna remember this and you're probably gonna bristle when I say it. DCO4, DCO6, it's an error code. If you don't know what that means, don't look it up. Please don't go chasing that one. It is not worth it but we would attribute it to a lack of discipline. A lack of discipline. Imagine what Jocko would say to you right now. Ridiculous, right? Absolutely ridiculous. Right, and, and, and people would say, well, of course it's a lack of discipline, right? If it's, a, it's an attention to detail, it's a small thing, but if you mess up this small thing, who knows what other big things you're going to mess up. That's not, a, that's not a linear, that relationship is not linear. It's not. And I've seen that relationship pan out otherwise, elsewise, many times. People who miss the little things but are rock solid on the big things because in their mind, no matter the pressures, they thought through the scenario and they prioritized correctly and they never made the big mistakes, but they made the little mistakes that we all seem to still care about. But I noticed over time and, and a lot of my peers also noticed over time that the more rules written or unwritten, it's even worse when there are unwritten rules. The more rules you institute, the more rules you write down, the less people critically think about the shit they're in the middle of. The less people can deal with the unknown, the less people are prepared to deal with a future that is by definition unpredictable. It is by definition impossible to know what's going to happen. And so when you institute all these rules, which also included how we could train you, how we could present certain scenarios, I could only present to you a nuclear detonation from an enemy combatant in one particular way for a long time. And so we trained you for one particular scenario, which we later found out 
wasn't plausible. But we had gone so far down the rules and regulation rabbit hole, we stopped thinking, which is the last thing you want to do as a trainer in any environment, military or not. Military is an easy example, again, right? Because I, I want even the lowliest, lowest, youngest, least experienced private seaman recruit, airman basic, I want that person to be able to think for themselves for when the senior leadership, for when the NCOICs, for when the supervisors get killed, are missing, are out of pocket and can't communicate. Even if you're in the office, in the garrison environment, you all work behind a desk. When the NCOIC is gone or has a family emergency and disappears for two hours to take care of their family, I want the A1Cs and the senior airmen, the airmen first class and senior airmen, to be able to keep going. And if there's one thing we know, it's that they will run across a situation that does not, that's not written down in the book. We know that. Certainly in the nuclear world, that's a given, I think. No one knows what that war would look like if we ever, ever had to fight it. But our job was to be ready for it every single day. To be ready for something no one in history has ever done. And yet your rules dictate that I can only train it for you in a particular way. Now, we, we have since, they have since rolled back a lot of those rules, although I haven't been in the community in, in a few years, and so I don't know what has crept back in. The point is, the more rules you institute, and we have a tendency to do this too as the organization gets bigger, right? Because it's difficult. We, we justify it by saying it's difficult to manage. It's difficult to communicate with every single person one-on-one. -on -one. It's difficult to set vision and to communicate evenly with everyone. I mean, I get it. But then that just tells me you haven't empowered your junior leaders well enough, which I think was the, SECAF's, the Secretary of the Air Force's point. More than 10,000 Air Force instructions disempowers unit commanders, many of whom have more than 20 years of experience anyway. They're not idiots. They're just handcuffed. And this also, I keep, I keep saying this, um, but you, you probably understand this by now, or I, I know you understand this by now. This is not unique to the military. This is simply where I'm coming from, right? So a lot of my examples are gonna be relevant to that. But this is, this is the issue with big organizations, large organizations. You don't have to have 330,000 to run into this problem. The earlier you think about this problem, the better, in fact. But as soon as you find yourself looking to institute a rule or write down a rule, Ask yourself, how are you going to handcuff your team by doing this? How are you going to disempower them? How are you going to remove the incentive to think and to train and to take ownership of mistakes? Even if you work in a retail shop with a staff of three associates, an assistant manager, and you, if you're going to institute a rule about inventory, or how to clear the register at the end of the day. If you're going to institute a rule instead of focus on the vision and your values and what this business is here to do, think about how you are going to hamstring your team. Because I promise you at some point in the future, however far along that might be, 
your team member, your associate, when you're not there, will run into a situation where they can't follow the rule. Where the external environment, where the external pressures, where a customer, where the weather, where a break-in has led them not to be able to follow the rule. And if your response is, well, it's common sense. They'll, they'll know what to do. Probably because our teams are always smarter than we give them credit for. But then why did you institute the rule? What's it there for if you could just talk to your team about this is what I expect most of the time and this is why? And then you provide feedback on a recurring basis more than once a year as you see them perform well and not so well. The more rules you institute, the more rules you write down, the less thinking, the less training, and the less ownership your team will have. Lesson number three, culture and culture change is a decades-long project. Decades long. Having been a part of two different organizational change initiatives now, at, at a relatively small unit level, a squadron of 100, the detachment about 150, um, even smaller cultural shifts uh, at other assignments. I don't see how it's possible to institute lasting cultural change, especially when you're talking about um, abusive leadership patterns and trying to reconnect to a previous heritage and trying to instill a different leadership philosophy. If, if those are the things you're thinking about doing or trying to do, you, you might very well be correct in the way forward, but you will not get there in two years or three years or four years, un unless the organization is that young, at, at which point you're not executing culture change, you're, execute, you're executing culture construction for the lack of a better word. You're building it from scratch. So if you're just starting out, you have an ideal, unique, and incredibly scary opportunity to build a culture the right way from the start. But if you're in an organization that's, that's older, even 20 years, 30 years, which isn't old in the grand scheme of things, but old enough, the Air Force is more than 70 years old, the Marine Corps is more than 200 years old, almost 250 years old. And, and among the things that the Marine Corps is famous for, it's their culture. It's a smaller organization by the numbers, less than 200,000 on active duty. But the Marine Corps and the Air Force, frankly, on two ends of the same spectrum, prove that culture is a decades-long project. So when I arrived in ICBM Ops in 2009, what everyone learned later that most of the community knew then was that people found some way to help, that's the nice euphemism for it, or straight-up cheat on monthly proficiency tests. Not as egregious as the stuff we heard about in the news in 2014, at least in, in my experience. It was subtle in some ways. People would rebuff the attempt. 
I would have older operators lean over my shoulder checking my answers. And I would either ignore them or just nod, hey, thanks. I'm as guilty as anyone else for, um, for seeing it, for knowing about it, for attempting to address it in equally subtle ways because I didn't necessarily want to rock the boat, but I also knew that my own integrity couldn't deal with it, couldn't live with it that way. When I became a crew commander, so that's akin to an aircraft commander sitting left seat responsible for the capsule and the flight area and the weapons and the airmen upstairs on the surface. When I became a crew commander and I took on my first deputy commander, whom I still talk to today, we took our first monthly proficiency test together and we had studied together prior. I was responsible for her qualification upgrade. It's a series of simulator rides, classroom time, getting her ready to certify to go pull alert. When we went to our first test, I told her, this is your own effort. The requirement is you take the test on your own. You know what you're doing. I don't care if you get a 100 or not. What matters is that you pass. And if you don't, we'll work through it. And if you don't pass, it's my responsibility. But I'm not helping you. Not during the test. It's a 25 question multiple choice test for one thing. So they don't take that long. But for another, it's, I'm not allowed to help you. It's not meant to be a team effort. Plenty of people argued that it should have been because alert was a team effort. And I absolutely agreed with that argument. But the reality was at the time, the rule said individual effort. So fine. Individual effort. So we're taking our test and I'm, I'm older and I've been around longer. And so I finish first. A lot of the questions are recycled or reworded and recycled. Went through it pretty quick. Turned it in. Passed. Walked out. And then I stood in the hallway waiting for her to get done. So while I'm standing in the hallway, I had two or three crew commanders, peers of mine, maybe a month ahead of me or a month behind me. Well, really, all of them ahead of me. I think I was brand new. Walk out of that room. And I had one come up to me and said, what are you doing? I'm like, what are you, what? I'm waiting. He said, you're not. You just left her in there. Yeah. But she's still taking the test. You're leaving her out to dry. You're hanging her out to dry. What are you doing? You should be in there watching for her and then checking her work. This, as, as a crew commander, this was really the first confrontation I dealt with. Not something in the field, in the operational environment. Not a wartime scenario. Not a bad training event. Not a commander upset at me. It was a peer, a crew commander, chastising me for not helping my deputy cheat on the test. And I said, she's smart enough to do fine on her own. Uh, I hasten to add, uh, she walked out and I said, how'd it go? She shrugged her shoulders and said, 100, it was fine. As I expected. And we walked off on about her day. And that pattern of behavior continued, at least for me. I let her take her own test. We studied together. We took training events together for about six months, seven months. But that was the world I started in. And that was the world most missileers were used to. And don't think for a minute that the senior leaders didn't know, the commanders didn't know, because culture is a decades-long project. So this, 
this lesson and this story is not meant to be an indictment of our leadership, of our commanders, of our colonels. It is not meant strictly as that because there is way too much going on to even worry about these tests. The tests didn't actually make you better at the job. They didn't make you more proficient. Studying for them didn't make you any better. We were tested on the same thing every 12 months. So in November, the headquarters that owned the missile community dictated point blank what we could test and train. So these monthly training sessions, these monthly classroom PowerPoint lessons and tests did not increase proficiency, did not make us better operators. And in fact, goes back to lesson number two, more rules. We thought less in this environment, and yet we still found ways to cheat on the test because if you didn't get 100s or 98s or whatever it was, your squadron commander, your supervisors would look down on you. And you might, in fact, even lose a job, like lose a a progressive job, a new position, a promotion in responsibility because of these tests. It should be obvious what kind of system, incentive system that creates. That culture was 40 years in the making. And so if you fast forward to 2014, 2015, 2016, where I come onto the scene with many of my peers and some new leadership and fresh blood in the senior ranks and we show up trying to change the world. I had three years max in which to make something happen inside of a squadron of about 100. And while I think our team enjoyed some successes uh, and after that first year in, in my second and third year, I worked for a great leadership team that the leadership pairing that we had at the top of the squadron and the team that I had next to me as peers, as other supervisors and as instructors and our crew member, we had a rock solid team and we were really clicking by 2016, in my opinion. But even with all of that, I remember toward the end of 2016 talking with my boss and talking with some of my friends about the fear that whatever success we did enjoy and that we could acknowledge, how much of it is cult of personality versus lasting change. And, and, and we talked about it over and over again, and we talked about it with our individual teams and our peers, and I talked about it with the instructors, and no matter what we talked about, no matter what types of processes, um, because we always try to systematize, no matter what we tried to do, the answer came back to its, its cult of personality. And after a number of us left who were there in the, the thick of the change and of the turbulence, after several of us left, things started to regress. This is not me saying that I was single-handedly saving the world, nor was my boss, nor was my team. We had simply a sliver of the world to work on. But I took for granted in the first two years how much power your culture change initiative could have. Two years in some ways is a long time to a brand new lieutenant who hasn't been in the Air Force but five minutes. Two years is forever. To me now, looking back on almost 13 years, it's a blip. It's a significant blip. But 
and it's a once in a career experience for me, but in the context of the Air Force and of the nuclear community, it is far from effectual community-wide. The most I could hope for is that I had a positive impact on the team that was next to me and near me. But you cannot change a culture in a handful of years, in single-digit years. If the organization is 70 years old, 100 years old, 250 years old, you absolutely will not change the culture in several years. Certainly not for the better. Sometimes, if you're looking to change it for the worse, you can with some significant inciting event. But I would say even changing it for the negative takes time. It takes a while. Because if the culture, if the culture is strong, if leaders are empowered, if people are critical thinkers and independent decision makers, and there's lots of things happening that are good, those same people are trained to resist negative change. We generally resist change to begin with, right? So then if somebody comes in who's a bad leader or who has a negative outlook on the unit or who's setting a bad vision or who's straight up abusing people, they will face resistance. But a lot of times what you see is then people leaving the organization, getting fired or quitting of their own accord. They leave the organization in the military. They may ask for a PCS they may change units. They separate entirely. They get out. They retire earlier than planned. They separate. Excuse me. They do not re-enlist. Whatever the example is for you. Culture change is a decades-long project, which means you have to have vision, and you have to know, you have to go into it understanding that it must be, that it will be incremental and painfully slow. And that's okay if you want it to last. If you don't, if you're looking for simply a flash in the pan that's only as good as, as the time you're there, then fine. Institute a bunch of stuff and grind through the resistance that's inevitable and maybe it'll work out for a short period of time. That wasn't my approach, but at the end of the day, I only had the three years. And I know looking back on it, from another person's perspective, there are things that I did, decisions I made that looked like flash in the pan type stuff. I have to acknowledge that. If you're serious about culture change, get ready for incremental, small steps, small increments, and to increment slowly, very slowly. All right, number four, you are the they. Uh, another saying uh, famous from one of my old bosses, uh, yet again, military and non-military alike, we love to talk about them. They made us do this. They just decided that we're going to sell this off. They just decided we're going to roll out a new product even though it's not ready. They just fired him. They just hired this dude. They just promoted her. They just demoted him. How could they do this? They, them versus us. It's a common thing. It, the dynamic pops up all over the place. And this, oh, this old boss, he's, a, he's, a, he's retired now, was a senior commander in, uh, on the base and would often remind us anytime someone was talking about the they or would ask him, hey, sir, do you think they will blah, blah, blah. 
he would always say, you are the they. And uh, he was famous sometimes for speaking in, um, for, for speaking coyly, C-O-Y-L-Y, coyly, I think that's a word, for, for speaking cryptically, let me say it that way. Very smart man. One of the best operators we had, even as a senior commander, and was, and was really serious about empowering tactical leadership. But sometimes he would say things that everybody in the room was like, oh, okay. We know there's something serious buried in that nugget, but none of us know what the hell he's talking about. And, and he wanted you to think about it and spend a lot of time thinking about it. And, and over time, he would release bits and pieces. And I was lucky enough to be around when he was explaining it one day uh, to a bunch of us. And he said, you are the they. Every time you find yourself asking whether they will do something, will do this or that, whether they will make this decision or that decision, first off, you need to replace they with whoever it is you think you're talking about. Because when the Air Force makes a decision, it's not 330,000 people doing one thing. It's some senior leader somewhere making a decision. But you can't start to fix problems and attribute what you think is a problem or understand what you think is a problem that might not even be a problem until you understand the source. That's, that's part A, if you will. Part B, you are what you condone. So to go back to the cheating scandal of 2014 and, and the years prior where people developed that pattern and where we developed that culture, it's not as simple as walking in and saying, this community, they just let people do whatever they want. They let people cheat on tests and they know about it. How could they do that? There's, there's some validity to that conversation, but what do you condone? What do you allow? What do you reinforce? When you're in the room, taking the test, administering the test, what do you allow to happen? Forget about everybody else. What do you condone? What do you suggest, encourage, discourage, reinforce? Leadership is individually defined. That includes what you allow, what types of behavior, what types of interaction, In, in the conversation in the last couple of years where we've talked a lot as a society about sexual harassment in the workplace, precursors to sexual assault, sexual assault amongst coworkers, people who know each other. What types of BS do you allow at work in the office? On the basketball court, if a bunch of you are going to play basketball after work, and people start making jokes about somebody that are offensive or that are getting on the person's nerves, that are sexual in nature. If it's, if it's men and women both playing in the game and somebody starts harassing, a guy starts harassing one of the women or vice versa, what do you allow to happen? Do you step in and say something? Hey, dude, back off. Shut your mouth and back off. Let's go. We're either playing basketball or we're going home. Or do you let it happen because well, that's just how he always is? Yes, he's just, he's just kind of an ass. We just deal with it. If that's the behavior you're cool with, if that's genuinely what you're cool with, okay, separate problem. But if you're not, then what the hell are you going to do about it? Because if there's nothing you're going to do about it, don't be surprised when it escalates into something far worse. You are the they. 
I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. None of us are perfect. So don't think for a minute that I'm, I'm coming to you with this one, with number four, suggesting that I've always understood this. Absolutely not. And don't let me convince you that I'm perfect understanding it now because I'm still not. All of us have to work on ourselves on a given day. And this is one of the big ones for me. You are the they. So every time I give advice, which I try to do, I try to listen more than I talk. I really do, especially lately. But anytime I find myself suggesting something, recommending something, is that what I would do? Is that what I think people should do? Is that appropriate? Every time I pass up an opportunity to correct or to help, am I just feeding a negative cycle, a negative behavior, a worse behavior in the future? You are the they. You are society, quote unquote. Society tells us this. It tells us that. It defines success in this way. Society says get a college degree to get a job. Even though there's a lot of people now making headlines and people not making headlines that are proving that incorrect. Whether you believe the BS or not is up to you not them, and not society. You can't see the air quotes, but I'm air quoting all over the place right now. You are the they. Lesson number five, final lesson. I know we've been talking a while. I've been talking a while. Hopefully this has been helpful. Hopefully this has been interesting and given you some food for thought. Lesson number five, the military isn't special, but it kind of is. The military is not special but it kind of is. How is it not special? 330,000 people, Marine Corps under 200,000, the Army, I think, in excess of 600, probably close to 700,000 active duty, uh, a few million across the board in terms of active duty, reserve components, National Guard, Naval Militia uh, for the states that have them. There are state defense forces all across the country. There are Millions of people across the country that in some form or fashion have signed on to a military obligation, a military commitment, a defensive commitment in support of their state and or the country. The longer you spend in an organization like that, and I'll, my experience is uniquely active duty, so I'll, I'll rely on that because the reserve components are different. If you're a traditionalist, a one week in a month type person, it is a different lifestyle. If you're an active duty member, you, you, may, you, you join for any number of reasons unique to you. And, and if you joined hoping to do a particular job or a particular mission and you're, you're kind of caught up in, the, in how cool stuff is, right? The, the Air Force ran ads with space operators maneuvering a satellite away from a possible collision. Looks cool. Not exactly the way things work, but, um, you know, but there's a lot, but they, I mean, the people who do that marketing, they're really good. The Marine Corps is famous for its ads and its campaigns and its slogans. The Air Force has put a lot of money into ads. The Space Force is publicizing itself. All the services do it. But the longer you're in, you understand that 
the military as an organization is just like any other large organization with rules that in some cases will annoy the crap out of you and in other cases make sense with senior leaders that can't possibly know everything that's going on and therefore are held responsible for stuff that they never even heard of. Every single military service has some level of bureaucracy, right? A, a body of human beings who are there to move paper back and forth, to move requirements and requests back and forth so that we can buy 50,000 tires for Humvees and all sorts of electronic chips and parts for airplanes, ships, tanks, automobiles, launch systems, satellite systems, millions of pounds of food for sailors at sea, soldiers on the base, airmen at the alert facility. Bureaucracy to some extent is, is a necessary evil, we'll say. It's a necessity. It is a natural byproduct of creating an organization so large it is impossible for one person to control it, to wield it, to affect it. The chief of staff of the army cannot possibly on his own affect 680,000 soldiers on a day-to-day -day basis. So he has a staff and his staff members who are three stars have staff members who are colonels and generals. And those individuals at one point or another were senior commanders who had staffs. Bureaucracy is a natural extension of a large organization period. It is a government organization, sure. The bureaucracy and government often go together and, and people often, that's I think what people think of when they think of bureaucrat, but I can tell you for sure there are bureaucrats in the private sector. There are people that whose job is it is to keep the gears turning. So it's not to say that it's a trivial job. These are important positions. They can be. I won't say they all are, and I won't say that all the rules they're enforcing are necessary back to more rules equals less thinking, but it is a natural byproduct. And that's something I didn't understand until the last few years. And a lot of my peers, well, I can't say that. Some of my peers, I think, understood that better than others. But the longer you're in the organization, the more you realize we're another organization, large, run by humans who are faulty which doesn't make us a bad place to be. It just makes us the same, more the same uh, than different in some ways. On the other side of the coin, the military is special. It is unique in how it assimilates its new members and what it expects of them, what it asks of them. We ask, the military asks a level of sacrifice, not just from its active members, but from their families, their children, their employers, co-workers, if they're a traditional guardsman or reservist. We ask a lot of sacrifice on behalf of the country of a very small subset of the country. We assimilate well. Basic training is a, is a prime example of this. We assimilate very well. We take away all, all your identity markers. We give you clothes. You all look the same, dress the same to some extent, speak the same, sound the same, shoot the same, drive the same. We do a lot of things to standardize. And some of those things that we do that we train save lives. Yes, this is true. 
but what we do not do, but the, the natural extension of how good we are at assimilating, what we have never done well, I don't think, particularly since the rise of the professional standing military in the early 20th century, what we have not done well is prepare you for citizenship after your tour is done. And, and while that is my fifth and final lesson for today's conversation, for this podcast episode, this is the lesson on which I've spent most of my time the last 12 months and will continue to spend time as I myself strive to become a productive citizen, a productive civilian for the first time since 2008. And before that, I was a college kid, so not exactly a productive citizen. Depends on how you look at it, right? And then before that, a high school kid, a minor, right? So, so effectively, in some ways, I've never been a productive citizen, civilian. I've been a citizen and a military member, but that is a unique world. Doing a job where to some extent I knew the, I knew the requirements and expectations before I walked in the door, some level of decorum, dress code, interaction, the ground rules for what you can and can't do. A lot of that stuff is set for you before you walk in. You know what to expect. Hey, my boss is a lieutenant colonel, is a colonel, is a captain. I have some image of what that means. But to be a productive citizen is now to take responsibility to lead and serve and contribute in some ways with far fewer rules and with a much wider latitude to do great things and also to do terrible things, to make terrible mistakes. And the military does not prepare its people to go on and do that, despite the fact that we all share transition in common. Even if you're on active duty for 45 years, you will get out. All of us do. So this, that's a conversation I want to continue having and will continue to have and post about and invite your comments on. I don't think, frankly, it's too early to, to think about transition. I don't think it's ever too early because you know it's going to happen. And while I, while I, I get the argument that if you think about transition, you're not thinking about the mission, I think that's a false dichotomy. That's not a choice. You can put all of your effort, your professional effort, into the mission, into your soldiers or your sailors, airmen, marines, your guardians, whoever it is, wherever you are, you can put all your effort into your people. You can put all your effort. Don't do it at the expense of your family. I've made that mistake also. But you can put all your effort into what's in front of you, to your professional and personal endeavors at the time. But if you have not taken some time, a free Saturday, a day on leave, a down day where you left work early, if you have not taken some time to think about who you are and how you are a productive person outside of the uniform, it will become that much harder to transition. You're not coming up with a final answer when you talk, when you ask yourself that question and think about it. You're coming up with an answer that is a jumping point that I will tell you I did not have. I was starting from scratch and I was already on the road to transition. I'd already submitted my application and it was approved and I had a date. 
and I was starting from scratch. And I will say, some, I've, I've read a couple of books that argue this. The longer you're in, in some ways, the harder it can be to transition because your identity is that much closely, much more closely tied to your military experience and your military persona than it might be for someone who only did one enlistment or one, uh, or one four-year, five-year tour. That's not true across the board. But I think it's true enough that it should give you some time to pause and think. The military isn't special, but in some ways it kind of is. And the military has a real opportunity not just to train and prepare creative, innovative, empowered leaders who know how to do that for other people, but to prepare those leaders to then step out into the real world to grow up, as we say, and continue doing the same for others. But it's really hard to make that jump until we find a bucket that we can use to describe ourselves because that is what a lot of the world or society air quotes again, demands of us. Leadership is individually defined, and so is success for you. You should have an idea of, of, what, of who you are as a productive citizen. You need to have that idea. But at the end of the day, if you hear the chiming in the background... That's my email account I didn't realize was open. Okay, at the end of the day, you need to ask yourself these questions. Have this conversation with yourself. It is your responsibility ultimately. I think the military could do a lot more, but at the end of the day, it will be on your shoulders, not just to answer the immediate question, what contribution will I make when I leave, but the broader question, what's my purpose now? How can I leverage the experience and the lessons and the mistakes I've made as a military member to continue helping other people and to continue to serve in some capacity, no matter what your status is when you leave. If you're in the military now, if you're considering transition, if you're in the middle of transition, ask yourself those questions and give yourself the time. Probably the best thing that I did was follow advice, follow the advice of a few people that I had met uh, some recently who said you need to take as long of a break as you can afford between your active duty time and your next job to decompress and to investigate yourself. Not everyone has the means to do it. I used leave to create that break of about a month. I used my saved up leave. Not everybody has that opportunity, but even if you take some time while you are on active duty doing your thing, Think about it. I'd love to hear your comments, especially to that last lesson, to that last point. Let me know if you're in transition, if you're thinking about transition, if you're struggling with the idea of what comes after, what that next chapter looks like. It took me more than, in truth, more than a year, but definitely in earnest working on it the better part of a year to come up with an answer that is still far from complete. We have a real opportunity to be productive citizens who are effective and empowering leaders and, ser and servants when we get out. But that preparation, at least in the current environment, is solely our responsibility. 
and we cannot neglect it and justify that by saying, well, I got to focus on the mission right now. I'll think about transition when I'm a couple months away. That's way too late. Six months is too late. And as I have proven, at least for myself, 12 months was too late. For what it's worth. I've, I really appreciate you hanging with me. Um, for those who did, at least make it to the end of the episode. Uh, redcircle.com slash shows slash the last question is our show website um, attached to our host, Red Circle. Depending on how you found this episode, just know you can find us on any podcast platform. If you like what you heard, if you enjoy the content, uh, rate and review. Give me your feedback. If you hate it, rate and review. Give me your feedback. I really want to know. Email me at A-R-U-N, Arun, at, e at enabledword.com. Let me know your thoughts. Find me on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram are where I'm most active. I would love to get your feedback. Uh, if you've got questions, if you have ideas or topics that you want to hear about on the next episode, uh, if you're interested in talking with me on a future episode, all of those questions and inputs are fair game. Hit me up, find me, let me know. This has been the last question. Thanks a lot for joining me and sticking around. We will talk to you guys next week.